Welcome everybody to the Contemplating Christian, and today we're going to be having a chat about a theologian that you may or may not have ever heard of before, and his name is Herman Bavink. So he was a Dutch Reformed theologian that was born and lived in the Netherlands and served as a uh, uh, theologian and worked in the church and was in, also involved in um, politics to some extent. He was like a a statesman, and he is a very good thinker, very rigorous, uh, smart theologian, and just has wonderful thoughts on how to think. And so we're going to study him a little bit here, and we are uh, fans of him a little bit, and we will probably make videos on him in the future as well, because he just has a lot of stuff. He has a four-volume uh, work called the Reform Dogmatics, and then a bunch of other stuff. And so lots of content to kind of uh, roll through with him. But today we're going to be talking about him and how to think, how he teaches us how to think and how to be both a Orthodox Christian who holds on to theologically you know, Orthodox belief, beliefs, who defends the faith, uh, but also at the same time uh, engages in the modern world, engages with modern ideas, modern philosophy, modern science. How do we engage with those two things? Uh, and trying to stay faithful and at the same time engaging with the, the ideas of our time. And he modeled that very well. And so we're going to mm. learn from him about how to think as a Christian in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, Mr. Samuel? Yeah. Um, so for this topic, Herman Bovink is awesome. But this idea of orthodox yet modern, I think biblically the idea would be <clears throat> in the world and not of the world. Uh, that's kind of what we'd be talking about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also talked a ton about this. Um, how exactly are Christians supposed to be in the world and not of the world? So um, one of the big themes is just going to be interacting with the world uh, and not mm -hmm. following it because we can't exactly do anything in the world if we don't interact with it at all. So um, we're pretty much going to be going over all the intellectual ways and also even some relational ways that you can interact with things in the world. So yeah, mm -hmm. those are my, those are my opening thoughts. All right. So this is, uh, his name is James Eglinton. He is somebody that has kind of uh, pioneered and birthed a ton of this kind of recent study on Herman Bavink. So he's a Dutch theologian and a lot of his works kind of remained, um, obscure for a long time, especially in America, because they were untranslated. And so they were just in the Dutch language. Uh, but in the last, um, I don't know, a couple decades or so, there's been a kind of a resurgence, and especially in the last few years, uh, of people translating all of Herman Bavink's work, and then putting it into the reformed world, and people have been kind of eating it up. So there's been a lot of Bavink study. And James Eglinton is a guy that's done a lot of that stuff. And been translating his works and whatnot, but he calls him in his biography on Herman Bavink. He says he was both a theologically conservative Calvinist and a modern European. So those are ideas that could seem fairly separated and fairly far apart. Uh, theologically conservative Calvinist, that might seem to some a very strict, rigorous, rigid um, thinker. And at the same time, he was a modern European man. He uh, engaged with many things in culture and politics and science and ethics and philosophy. And he was very engaged in those disciplines. 
and wrote a lot about them and basically wanted to apply Christian thinking and um, wanted to apply his mind to all of these different pursuits. And he felt mm. that as Christians, we should be doing that. And so yeah. first thing we'll kind of talk about is how we um, basically with our mind and our intellectual pursuits, how we should seek to imitate Christ. And that seems fairly obvious as Christians that we want, that's what we want to do. What would Jesus do is a famous bumper slogan. And we want to imitate Christ in all we do. He is the center of our ethics. He's the center of our ethical system. So we imitate Christ in all we do. Bavink calls the imitation of Christ, the shape of the spiritual life. And so that's kind of where we want to start this off, uh, how we imitate Christ in all we do. That's how we think about a Christian life and our spiritual walk. Yeah. <clears throat> with, uh, with imitating Christ, there's actually recently I've, I've read and heard about this debate, but there is a debate on whether we should imitate Christ and uh, if there's biblical precedent for it, because the worries are if we imitate Christ, we're just going to kind of mindlessly be focused on outward actions. But the uh, <clears throat> then some theologians started saying we should conform instead of imitate, uh, conform to Christ. That That might just be a language issue. I'm actually for just the idea of imitating Christ. I do think there's a uh, biblical precedent, mainly because there's some places that just straight up say, uh, like, uh, to imitate Christ, like Paul, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then I'm pretty yeah. sure Jesus just straight up says, imitate, <laughs> imitate me. I, I forgot his exact words or where, where that one was said, but I like, there I are some straight up commands to like imitate Christ. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, Paul says that First Corinthians eleven one says, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." Um, <clears throat> I think Jesus. It's implicit when he says to follow me. I think in that day and age when a rabbi said to follow me, that means you walk with me, you talk like me, you think like me, you do everything like me. That's what it meant to follow Christ. Uh, so when <clears throat> he calls out his disciples, that's what he's saying. He's saying, "Come be, come be a mini version of me. Come be like me." So mm. I think, yeah, completely support that idea. <laughs> As Christians, yeah. we should be like Jesus. Um, I like the this idea. I'll throw this quote out and we can chat about it. Uh, Bobbing talks about, this is in regards to our ethics. He says, and ethics is how we act in the world, how we apply our, um, our theological thinking to our actions, our everyday life and our morality. He says, in Christ... So if you were, were united to Christ, he says, the law is our norm. And this is from the article. The law is our norm. So Samuel, do we obey mm. the law? Do we obey the law as Christians? What are your thoughts? Should we tell Christians you need to obey the law of God? No, just kidding. Yeah, we should. Um, <clears throat> we should 100% tell Christians to obey the law. Uh, so that, well, that's, a, that's another debate people have. Um, should we follow the law? Or some people will say that Jesus Christ's sacrifice uh, gives us precedent to not follow the law because, you know, he saved us, he died for us. Boom, I'm good. Uh, there, There is this uh, nominalism or anti, I think it's technically anti-nominianism uh, mm -hmm. that is basically anti-law within Christianity. That is not okay. It's uh, definitely 
heretical, we do have to follow the laws. As in, when we follow Jesus, as you were saying earlier, we need to imitate him. And Jesus uh, followed the law perfectly. So we should seek to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. I would say we like we do have to make some distinctions with like the Old Testament law and uh, like sacrifices and um, also the judicial law of ancient Israel. Like obviously there are those distinctions, but in general, if we're just talking about right and wrong, obviously we have to follow it as Christians. We have to imitate Jesus. Um, we have to bear good fruit in that way. If if following the rules and doing good things and producing good fruit isn't um, isn't like actually following the law, then I don't know what it would be. Like, what is bearing good fruit if it's not uh, good things? Right? What would it be? Right. And so this is uh, what in the reformed world is called the third use of the law. So the third use of the law is talking about like all the things that the law accomplishes and um, previous in the Christian life, the first order of things is that the law convicts us of sin. It tells us where we fall short, but eventually uh, the third use of the law comes in and says, now that you're a Christian, you're to obey. Uh, God has made you a a new creature. Now that you're in the new covenant, you have a new heart, a heart of flesh Mm -hmm. that actually seeks to obey. And that's what the promise of the new covenant is, is that they will have a, that they will have a heart of flesh that will actually obey mm-hmm. um, and they will actually teach others to obey that's the promise in, in jeremiah 31 um mm-hmm. so we have this and then all over the place in the in the new testament jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commandments um if you abide in my love you'll keep my commandments then you'll abide in my love just as i've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love first john mm-hmm. 5 talks about how uh this is the love of god that we obey his commands and his commandments are not burdensome so clearly there's this heart change where it's no longer a task to obey God, but it's actually our delight uh, so that we can actually see it, like say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, we love the law of God. We absolutely love God's law, his instruction, mm-hmm. his guidance, his rules, his statutes. Those are good for us. We want to obey them. And so that is what Christ actually does in our hearts. He, he makes us law keepers. Um, and so mm-hmm. we don't do that perfectly as Christians, but we strive for that. We have a pursuit of perfection, even though we're not perfect. Yeah. And also in this idea of imitating Christ and following laws, um, we aren't to pit the old laws against new laws or completely change them or something like that, but we can reinterpret them in a sense, as in if it like, we'll we'll follow the explicit, like don't murder people in cold blood. Like obviously we're going to follow that, but um for, for the other things, for example, in the Old Testament, we can't like just straight up apply everything in the Old Testament or even some of the stuff Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount. We can't literally do that, like chopping our hand off or something. Um, so we do have to find principles underlying these things. Like we, we shouldn't just forget about the law. So so as as we like read through the Old Testament, once we get to all the laws, we shouldn't just be like, oh, I don't have to care about these. No, we should be seeking to find what was the reason these laws were given? And then figuring out how to apply that reason to our modern context. Um, totally. Yeah. Because, yeah, we can't just forget about them. But that that's yeah. actually right there. That's what allows us to be like orthodox yet modern. That's how Herman Bavink got his title and specifically in yeah. his work for ethics because he really sought these underlying principles and, and then addressed how do we use those today? Because um, 
it's really, really hard to convince people uh, to to follow the law if we say, yeah, everything from like 2,000 years ago, you got to follow to the T. Um, right. And that's how you follow the law, right? That's yeah. That doesn't seem uh, viable. Yeah, totally. And we see uh, actually Jesus himself and Paul, I would argue, both principalize the law. So you just talked about how we, sh- we need to principalize uh, the Old Testament law, and then what we see in, in New Testament, um, what's reiterated, some of the things that even don't, um, like we can't follow them to the letter, or we're not supposed to follow them to the letter, like gouging out our eyes. Um, but the principle behind it is take radical steps to fight for purity, say, or, or something like that. Um, but Jesus principalizes the law in multiple places when he says that the summary of the mm-hmm. law is this, to love God and love your neighbor. Um, that's him taking the principle that would apply to every law and the reason behind all of the laws. And so, and then Paul does that as well. Think of uh, when he talks about, I think it's first Corinthians eight, when he talks about um, do not muzzle an ox while you tread out, while it treads out grain. And he actually takes that old Testament law that seems super obscure. And um, yeah, basically that, that idea is that they would muzzle an ox so that it couldn't eat while it was working. And he's mm-hmm. saying the old Testament law is saying, don't do that. Um, and so he takes that and then principalizes it to me. And basically it's, it's, uh, supporting financial support as him, as a ministry, uh, as a minister. Mm-hmm. And so he takes that to apply to that, which is really, really interesting. We wouldn't think to do that, but that's what Paul does. And so I think that mm-hmm. gives us uh, permission and guidance and license to with caution, but we should carefully try to, um, yeah. What, how, how do these laws apply to us today? How can we follow mm-hmm. them? So yeah. they principalize the law. Yeah. And, I, and the principle is love to love God and love neighbor. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, and when it, when it comes to this, uh, it, so the, well, the, so we're using an article and the next part of the article starts getting into staying centered as it not, uh, going to, extremes but there's this big idea of like grace and christianity and jesus isn't necessarily anti-culture it is anti-sin so we can't bind people uh to things that like are a matter of conscience really or a matter uh up to the individual because there are some things that are actually up to that i believe paul talks about this in romans so Mm -hmm. um for example Let's just talk about like modern day music. Obviously, there are some things we shouldn't listen to where it would be like, yeah, uh, as a Christian, you shouldn't listen to a lot of the modern music. But um, rap is a relatively recent invention and uh, and production, or at least rap as we know it. Uh, hmm. And it's become very, very big. But if we were then to say to be Christian, you are not allowed to listen to any rap music at all. Well, that would turn a lot of people off and it would that would be a matter that doesn't really well matter as much as as other things like murder like obviously we can use rap for good so that's that's one way we could be orthodox yet modern we can hold orthodox beliefs and have this modern uh cultural movement of lap rap listening to it and enjoying it and maybe even uh using it to produce a message we want. Um, Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be like rapping about 
Christian religion or something like that. Uh, so for example, I'm a big fan of NF. He's uh, like, he's a clean rapper, but he doesn't necessarily all, all the time talk about um, religious things in his rapping. Um, so I guess that's one example of how we can be orthodox yet modern, where people can engage in the culture, yet uh, still hold orthodox beliefs. Right. Yeah, Bavink says uh, from this article, God's work never opposes nature and culture in themselves, but only their degeneration. So what you're getting at, grace actually restores nature. God, God is at work restoring all things and recreating the world and mm. healing it from sin. And in that way, he is using things like science and technology and culture and politics. He's using all those things to accomplish his purposes. And so as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of those things, but should, um, insofar as they're not sinful, uh, embrace them and utilize them and things like that. And so I think of somebody like our, a group like the Amish. This is where uh, Bavink would have disagreed strongly with the Amish as like modern technology comes out and cars come out and things like that. And the Luddites or the Amish are saying, we're not going to have any of that. Bavink would say, well, that's foolish because God is obviously progressing the world in a certain way. And these things aren't sinful in and of themselves, but they're tools and they can be used for good or evil. And so we should go about using them for good. And so he has this big idea of grace restoring nature. Grace restores politics and culture and science and art and music and literature and business, all these different things. And that Christians are actually supposed to be in the world, acting, actively engaged in it, mm. acting and imitating Christ in their different vocations and professions to restore nature. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a big idea for him. Yeah. And so in the one, like, as we're imitating Christ and also staying centered, is it not being extremely polarized? So not being all the way like I'm adopting everything in the world, but also not being the opposite of like, I'm orthodox and I'm not going to engage in the world at all. Um, as we're trying to balance that and imitate Christ and and follow laws, there are some uh, things we can learn from Bobbing. And again, the article we're going through points out some <clears throat> tools that help us do that exact thing. And uh, there are four. Uh, number one is intellectual curiosity. Number two is genuine friendship. Number three is charitable receipt, which we'll go over and explain that a little more. And then we're, and then also talking just about logs and planks, so kind of like um, intellectual humility. Uh, and so th those are the four tools, not the four, as in we probably could think of more, but those are four things we could use to be orthodox, orthodox yet modern. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just to start with intellectual curiosity or intellectual virtue, Bavink uh, himself, he went to, as he went to college, he decided to, instead of going to the University of, I think it's Kampen. I'm not Dutch, so I don't know how to pronounce that, but mm -hmm. uh, K-A-M-P-E-N, Kampen, um, which was the more theologically conservative school. He actually went to the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, which was a much more kind of uh, school of the day, much more theologically modern and probably liberal in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, probably against orthodoxy in certain ways and a lot more intellectually rigorous, more scientifically rigorous. And he believed that he would be getting a better education there. And so he went there and some people, some of his friends advised him against that and basically warned him saying, you're going to have to be fighting your fighting battles every day. And 
Bobbing did not fear going to this place where he would face a lot of a lot of intellectual disagreement. And he didn't lose his faith there. He didn't go there and become an atheist or anything like that. He maintained his Orthodox Christian beliefs and engaged very rigorously with those around him and learned a lot and learned that some of the things are some of the things in modern theology were worse, uh, but some of them were not that bad. And some of them can actually be uh, there could be points that could be taken. So I think he gives us a model of that. That doesn't mean everybody should go to a secular university. I think that for a lot of people, that's actually not a good idea today uh, for, for many reasons. But um, if somebody feels called to that certain area, there are people that should go into those spaces and go into places of vast intellectual disagreement uh, for the sake of contending for the gospel, contending for, for the faith. And we shouldn't be as scared of that in our lives. We shouldn't be scared of intellectual disagreement. Mm -hmm. And so he, he models virtue in that intellectual virtue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so with this intellectual curiosity, we should obviously study and research other schools of thought. And this might be one thing we can actually be critical of when it comes to Christians, because a lot of them take a very strict fundamental route and just say, um, yeah, so we would obviously say that Christianity is the one true religion. Um, but then a lot of people take that and then automatically say that everything in every other religion is false. Well, I mean, we could say the other religions are false, but that doesn't mean everything is wrong with them or that everything is incorrect. You still can find things correct in those religions. So a better way to think about this when it comes to intellectual curiosity and thinking of other schools of thought is other other worldviews would have a different grade or level of truth. And so we can actually still like if I um so here here's an example. The the other day I uh started talking with someone who was very into Zen Buddhism. And we we got on this exact topic, and there's actually a lot in Buddhism that connects to Christianity. Um, a lot of the spiritual practices and uh, Eastern spiritual ideas can connect to Christian wisdom. Um, but as Christians, we wouldn't say that they have the full truth. We could, I mean, we could try and put a number on it, but that would just kind of be absurd. Because I mean, how do we even gauge that? Like, oh yeah, they're seventy three percent correct. Um, yeah, but still there is some truth there, but if we want to be perfectly fulfilled, perfectly happy and have the fullness of life and the fullness of truth, we have to find the one that is a hundred percent. So another analogy would be this about why we need the 100%. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, if, if we were about to go scuba diving, and there were like five different tanks of oxygen, but each of, the, each of them had a different level of oxygen in them. You would want the one with 100% oxygen to make the journey. You don't want to like pick one with 10% oxygen and then run out, of the air, run out of air as you're like deep in the ocean because um, yeah. you'll die. Mm -hmm. So Right. Yeah, I think that's a good, good, good illustration. And uh, people call this seeds of truth. Um, different theologians have, have called it that where these different worldviews it nobody just believes something that's just 100 percent false people don't believe that people wouldn't adhere to that sort of faith and so the wrong position on other worldviews or other religions is not they're 100 false but what 
what points of commonality do does Christianity share with those religions? What points of common ground can I find with this person? How can I relate to them well? Um, mm -hmm. And then what points of differences are there? But oftentimes, uh, a good way to engage in a relationship that's ongoing with somebody is to uh, engage where there is common ground, mm -hmm. if there is common ground, um, and try to seek to understand where they're coming from and to be humble in that. And so Herman Bobbing did this very well. And he the article kind of uh, talks about this friendship he had with a Muslim who actually was- Which is the second to tool, by the way, genuine friendships. Right. Yeah. Got it. Yes. We'll maybe go back and forth a bit, but um, he gave this illustration or this, sorry, this quote from mm -hmm. Herman Bobbing's journal as they were dialoguing him and this Muslim friend uh, when he was in school. And Herman Bobbing writes this. He says, I can only regret that we- him and his Muslim friend have gone so far, immensely far from each other in principle and view of life. So he's lamenting the fact he's not a relativist. He's lamenting the fact that his, he believes his friend will go to hell. He's a theologically conservative Calvinist. He believes that, um, that that's what he believes. He says, and yet my sincere friendship and warm interest will remain with you despite such great difference in insight and conviction. And that's a beautiful thing that he has non-Christian friends. And I think that as, as Christians, we should look to see in our life, is there anybody in our life that disagrees with me? Do I have friends that don't agree or that, that disagree fundamentally with my worldview? And I think if we're Christians who are seeking to be missional in the world and we're seeking to be salt and life, uh, salt and life be in the world, but not of the world, a good sign of that is if you have any non-Christian friendships. Mm -hmm. And so, when it comes to friendships, you're right. They do go back and like, we can all obviously connect these tools. So when it comes to intellectual curiosity and genuine friendships, they work, they work together. Like as we're researching these other views, we'll develop uh, friendships uh, with people we don't disagree with. And in those friendships, part of that is going to just be learning about their views and having that intellectual curiosity. All right. Um, so we, we should have disagreements between right. friends. Um, as in if, uh, so I recently did a video on friendship and if yeah. your friendship falls apart just because you disagree about something, even if it's a big disagreement, then the foundation of that friendship or the reason you had that friendship probably wasn't the best reason or a good reason right. or a true reason. Uh, right. Remember, true true friendship is this idea of both of you are, are passionate about this one thing and you actually connect over it. So it's not based upon what you look like or your job or um, how much, like if you believe the same exact thing, it's both of you are interested in this thing and you're doing it together. Um, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the idea of friendship. So if both of you are interested in like philosophy and you just like talking about it, um, yeah. regardless of, what both people believe you still can talk about philosophy and be friends no matter what. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, to totally. And I think that we just see this a lot, especially online uh, in our world today. I think it's important that we learn from Herman Bovink here on how to disagree well and how to engage well intellectually with others, especially coming from different positions. Cause I see this a lot online, especially, um, there's just a kind of a fear or an insecurity in people when their beliefs are challenged or when people disagree with them. 
And so what often happens from a place of insecurity or fear that they're wrong is that they will sort of lash out at other positions in very obscene ways or just kind of ridiculous ways. And they'll say things like, how could anybody be a Calvinist? How could anybody be a Roman Catholic? How could anybody be a Buddhist? And they're just kind of um, from a place of insecurity about their own beliefs because they don't have a very solid foundation of, I believe the truth firmly because of that. And they're kind of scared that their position is being attacked. Then they are often uh, far more ridiculous in their critiques of other positions in an, in an unfair manner. And mm -hmm. so we should learn uh, the next tool Bavink, uh it talks about with Herman Bavink is a charitable receipt, uh, <clears throat> a reception, a charitable reception of other viewpoints. So we steel man other viewpoints. We don't knock down and disagree with the worst versions of our opponent's argument, but we steel man. We say, okay, how can that be read most charitably? And then mm -hmm. if I have the truth, it'll still defeat whatever position but I should at least engage with the best of my opponent's viewpoint. Yeah, and that helps build genuine friendships and is a great tool for intellectual curiosity. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, think of how difficult it would be to have a, a friendship and also learn about another worldview if you were just presenting the other person's argument in the worst way possible, or right. if you were constantly just like interacting with their weakest ideas instead of like right. saying, hey, that's a that's a good idea. What if it was this way? Would it be better? And then then trying to interact with it. Um, so just right. being charitable. Um, we shouldn't have this snobbery of thinking ours is the absolute best argument out of all of them and is like indestructible and invincible. Um, so we shouldn't have this indefense, uh, invincible certainty. Uh, yeah. Or something like that, because then we will automatically just say, oh, yeah, everyone else is just completely wrong in every way. And we won't really right. care about what they're saying. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite examples of like a friendship going wrong, I, it, it doesn't actually make me happy, but it is my favorite one to use to, to highlight this point is actually Tolkien and Lewis. Um, it's well known that they were friends and they didn't always agree. And uh, obviously, C.S. Lewis started off an atheist and then became a Christian, but eventually Lewis and Tolkien stopped really being friends near the end of their life because uh, there was like kind of an animosity between the Roman Catholicism and the Protestantism. And uh, they, they kind of just like drifted apart at one point mm -hmm. and weren't as good of friends as they were just because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. And so we want to, try to as best we can and sometimes this isn't possible um but try and this is a really hard balance and so it's hard to not fall into a ditch of just being friends without any disagreement and then you're actually not honoring christ in that way either um so it's really hard to model good disagreement it just is difficult and um but think about like just as an extreme example of how this is something we should seek to do think about like a christian and an atheist debating and let's say the christian during the debate was misrepresenting the atheist and was saying things that the atheist wouldn't actually agree with. He that he'd say that's not my position actually, but the Christian was like winning the debate, quote unquote. I would say that he wasn't honoring Christ in that debate. He wasn't being honest with the truth. He was actually dishonoring Christ, even though he was quote unquote defending the faith. If he wasn't actually engaging in an intellectually virtuous way, he was dishonoring Christ. He was dishonoring the truth, and so. That's one example of how 
uh, a triumphalistic spirit when we engage intellectually is not honoring to our neighbor. It's not loving our neighbor well, and it's not loving God well either. And so mm -hmm. we should really try to steel man our opponent's positions. And that, that takes for us to steel man it, we must know it, which means we must study it with a spirit of charitableness and humility. Yeah. And I think uh, the article went over an example between Bavink and Schleiermacher. Uh, mm -hmm. So an, another way other than steel manning to be charitable is actually using their same starting point. And that's kind of what Bavink does. And Will, you might be able to expand on this a little more than I can. But um, when Bavink was interacting with Schleiermacher, I think the first thing Schleiermacher started with is human experience. And that was kind of his starting point. Um, <clears throat> his, his foundational uh, ideas and beliefs about how we know things and how we uh, and what we believe in everything like that. And right. instead of like picking that apart and saying like, Hey, no, let's start with this. Cause it's better. And it's, and it's my idea. Well, a better way it would be saying like, okay, let's, let's start with human experience. Um, mm -hmm. and then question them and say, what, what actually follows from starting with human experience? Uh, you can then try and prove your point of view from their starting point. Um, yeah. And, and disprove theirs from their starting point. Try and show them that, hey, if you start there, you're actually wrong. Um, right. And it doesn't actually prove what you think it proves. Right. Which is would be a great way to interact charitably right. with other ideas. Right. Yeah. So to try, I'll try to, I'll try to explain slightly more. Um, and this could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that this is somewhat correct. <laughs> but basically. Uh, in the history of like when a theologian, let's say John Calvin or Augustine or Aquinas, pick any theologian, when they would start, they would start, okay, I'm going to start writing my humongous volumes of theology. Okay. Uh, that has to start somewhere. There has to be a starting point to that work. And typically in the Christian tradition, there have been some starting points that were considered more accurate than others. So they would start with, we're going to start with the natural world or something like that. And this is where like Aquinas would go, or he would say, I start with my sense experience and I, and I, and I see, um, different things in the world that point me to God, or they'll start with their doctrine of God, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, or people would say, well, I got to start with scripture because I know scripture is the truth. And so that's what I'm going to start with when I start my work of theology. Well, modern theologians rejected that idea in large part. They would, they wanted a different starting point and they would start, uh, in more of an experiential or existential manner they would start with the human experience um and not even like sense data like aquinas it was different it wasn't uh yeah not like classical foundationalism mm. that's that's kind of what um aquinas would think but it was more uh they would start with human experience and mm. when that's schleiermacher he's the father of modern theology and was very influential and when bobink would read him he would say okay i don't agree with some of these things but this doesn't sound all that different from like where Calvin begins in his institutes when he talks about the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man and how we know ourselves. Calvin will talk about how we only know ourselves insofar as we know God. And so that's not that far away from where Schleiermacher starts, but just one of them is more orthodox and one of them's less so. And so Bobbink is interacting with it charitably and seeing, okay, which parts of this are actually correct. And I think that that's a good, that's a good model of engagement sure yeah um and so that's those are ways to be charitable and then 
with the last of the four tools, it's it's called logs and planks. And it's based off the passage where Jesus is telling people to check the plank in your own eye before you take the sliver out of your brother's eye. Uh, mm. And so that, that passage is specifically talking about uh, hypocrisy. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you, you might be able to get a, a couple other themes out of that. But I mean, what, what we really want to talk about here is intellectual humility and also just having a sense of ignorance. All, all people or even, even Christians need to understand that they don't know anything. We have to know that we can't know everything as in we need to understand that we have some type of ignorance within us and it, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't like let that ignorance uh, give us despair or make us suddenly say, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. I can't. Uh, and like let our whole worldview fall apart. That's that's not good. Um, but we should be humble. And this ties into all of the other tools as well. But we, we shouldn't be prideful. Again, we shouldn't like, we, we shouldn't pick out the sliver in our opponent's idea and say, you're actually wrong because of this when there are like so many things wrong with our ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be going against everything we just talked about. It would be going against um, charitable receipt. It would be going against uh, intellectual curiosity. It would be going against all these things. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is kind of the, the final point. And it seems like all of them work together and kind of progress towards uh, towards this. But what yeah. are your first thoughts on logs and planks? Yeah, I think that's great too. We need to model theological and intellectual humility. And that comes from a place of just not not feeling insecure about um, your beliefs and just being confident enough in what you think, especially if if you believe Jesus rose from the dead and you have been changed by him and and you believe Christianity is true, then you don't need to um, be very insecure. You can have a confidence about you and you can study other things and other ideas with a confidence and just knowing that whatever the truth is, is what the truth is. And I can follow the truth where it leads and that's mm. a good thing to, that's a good way to navigate life. It's a more fun, more interesting way to engage with the world. And so, yes, we should seek to remove the logs in our own eye and the logs in our own ideas, our worldview. And Bob Inc. modeled this very well. And this is specifically important today. When we live in a culture, this has always been hard, but our culture today is particularly bad at disagreeing and modeling good disagreement. And so we need this even more today. And so Mm -hmm. Herman Bovink is a good theologian for our time to read and to listen to and to learn from. And so that is what we're seeking to do today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for one more thing on this, actually just thought of it Um, a great way to do all of us because all of this, because you might be wondering like, okay, how how do I actually apply all these tools? What is a, what is a good way where I can actually keep in line with these four things like building friendships, uh, being curious, uh, also like checking the logs and planks and everything like that. Um, a good way to do that would actually be Socratic questioning. And it's also a great way to deal with difficult people in our culture. So if people get angry or they don't like hearing your view because they don't like because they disagree with it. So a lot of people won't even listen to people who say that there is objective truth. Well, if they won't listen, question them and make them talk. Right. That's what Socrates did. He 
he didn't say, hey, here's my view and we're going to start with this. He asked them a question, they answered, and then he continued questioning them. Uh, keep questioning them until you get them to the point where they say, wow, I don't know, or I never thought about that, or wow, that really doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great way to follow these four tools. Absolutely. Kind of questioning. So yeah, it's good. And I think I think that's a good place to end. That sort of practicalness, asking questions is good. Mm -hmm. uh, so Bobbing teaches us how to be both an Orthodox Christian and a modern person living in the modern world and to be faithful mm -hmm. in that and how to model Christ and also how to think well, how to think, use our minds well, and to love God with our minds, to love our neighbors with our minds. So that has been the topic of this video, and this has been the Contemplating Christian. Feel free to uh, go down to the description and see. We'll link the article below as well. You should read it and dive into Herman Bobbing's ideas and his theology, and also feel free to support us in any of the ways below. But until next time, uh, see you later. God bless. God bless. Thank you.